I think the reality is, is that teams and companies are made up of groups of people, not individuals. I think this myth of the founder hero is maybe there's some truth to it, but at a certain scale, a company is much more than one person. And maybe that one person has a disproportionate effect, but I don't think being a founder maybe makes all the difference in the world. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is both personally and professionally to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. Test one, two. This is my oh, radio voice. You, you Welcome sound. to K-O-R-A, Cora. Every 24 hours, more data for you and your ring. How's that? Is that good? <laughs> oh, you want to be, be even sexier. That is so sexy. That is unbelievably good. Were you like previously like a disc jockey or something? No, but I have never, ever even been on the radio. So this is like so exciting good. for me. No matter who my guest is, no matter how many times they've done these things before. Yeah. It is human nature when you tell a story to bang the table. What does it sound like? Just like that. Oh, it's like, that's a very like like ominous. Uh, it's not it's like the, the, the sound of it's death not, knocking at your door. Not. I'm here for you. <laughs> <laughs> so have you, uh, has it been hard getting people into the office? Uh, yeah, of course. So we have like lunches on Wednesdays. We have events in the afternoons and happy hours and stuff like that. And, you know, that's actually done pretty good. And honestly, I will say this. People really enjoy having the opportunity to come back and be face to face. Now, that being said, there's not a five day work week where people are coming to the office. That is not happening. People are still on the flexible side of how they're doing it, right? They're coming in and some people work at home on Mondays and Fridays and come in on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. I'm personally trying to be there Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and maybe some Mondays and Fridays just to be inspirational. What's the rub here? Like, is lunch is going to work? You know, I don't know that anything's going to work, right? Maybe another way of saying that is I think the cat's out of the bag, particularly in tech. You know, there's lots of benefits to not having an hour commute in your life. And the flexibility of being able to be at home is super valuable. And so I think that's the thing now. And you kind of have to deal with it. But everyone also realizes that there's a lot of value in getting together with your teammates when you're doing a brainstorming session or a planning session where like low latency, you know, high velocity communications where you're, you know, brainstorming ideas is really valuable. And so you try and find the balance. I don't know. Everyone's talking about hardcore Twitter over there and, Mm. you know, how you got to get be in the office and that's the way you got to be hardcore. There's a case for that, too, you know, maybe. But I think most people really value having some flexibility in their life. It's weird for the conversations that I have with executives. This is top three. This is the things that I'm talking to most leadership about right now. Yeah. Do you feel that way? It's definitely top three. And the thing is, it's not like there's no one right answer. Marketing is different than sales. Sales is different from engineering. Hardware, our folks in Finland, they're in the office. And the reason why they're in the office is because their equipment, the electronics, the test stations, the test benches, all that stuff is like, that's physical stuff that they got to be around. So you know what they are? They are in the office and they're in the office five days a week because that's where their work is. You know who complains the most? Honestly, young folks are missing out because they don't have the opportunity to get mentorship from folks who've been around, you know? And you know who probably benefits the most? People with young kids because handling young kids in a full-time job, that's a hard thing to juggle. It's really helpful if you get a little bit of flexibility in your life. 
By the way, I did not hit that table. That no, was not and me. That was you way, hitting. I you hit that. I doubled that was down. You. Once you did it, I accidentally <laughs> did it. Uh, I accidentally did it. Hey, we haven't started yet, right? This yeah, is still... just, we're just rolling. Okay, I just good. roll. Yeah, okay. I just roll. There's no official start or end. Oh, say Like, we just roll. That's a really good trick, just to kind of like subtly just lead someone in. I so don't even know. I'll tell you, like 140 <laughs> or so episodes in, the problem, admittedly, that you like we've started to have with the show, which is an amazing problem to have, is that now people are like, oh, you know, coming on this podcast, whatever. And you kind of make something of it in your head before yeah. you join. It's a fucking conversation. I get like, it. I it's get just it. a conversation. So the less I can make it feel like there's microphones in front of us and the more it's just a conversation, that's really the feel of the show. Grit. How to be truly gritful in today's gritless society and workplace. COVID has dealt us a horrible, horrible hand, and now only the gritful individuals are truly demonstrating grit. (laughs) Capital G-R-I-T, that's grit. Dude, you have an unbelievable radio voice. I should try radio. You have an actually unbelievable. Maybe that's my new career. Unbelievable. This will be the story I tell in the next podcast, which is, how did you get into radio? This is going to be, your team's (laughs) going to listen to this and be like, this is our new marketing strategy. Oh, no. It's just a coffee talking. Have you been here before? Have you been to this office? I have not. Honestly, just going back to the beginning of my career, literally one of the first seminal moments of my career was John Doerr coming to Macromedia, and we were this CD-ROM-based multimedia company, and he comes in and he says... You know, in his, he's got a voice. I don't, I can't do his voice, but he's got a voice. He's like, the internet's coming. You got to get on the internet. The internet's happening. The web, like, get on that. And it was like a big, you know, it was one of these moments. Remember when Microsoft pivoted 11,000 people and said, the browser's the thing. It was the same stuff for us. Everything the next day was internet, 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 web, 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 web. And John Doerr was the source of it. And that was like my first interaction with Kleiner Perkins in any way was like that. Funny story. I had just gone to a trip to Mexico and I had had a couple cocktails on the beach and fallen asleep in the sun. And you know what happens when you fall asleep in the sun in in Mexico? You burn. And I had burned not just like a normal sort of red burn, but like one where my skin was literally peeling off in sheaves. And I was like five days out from the burn meeting with John Doerr. And I'm supposed to give a presentation. At Macromedia. At Macromedia. And I'm wearing a shirt with a collar and sleeves. And every time I like raised my arm, some pressure gradient inside my shirt would change and some skin like <laughs> that had sloughed off of my body would sort of like poof out a little bit at the wrist and then the collar. No. So I was really self-conscious about it. I don't think anyone noticed. It was just one of those things that I remember really profoundly. So that's my Kleiner Perkins warm-up what story. What a story. Oh, yeah. Well, there's was, a million of them. Was he on the board? You know, I think he was on the board. Okay. Yeah. And then did Macromedia get acquired by Adobe? Yep. Yep. 20, oh, 2005, I think. Okay. Earlier, I think. 2001. No. The company, I think we got acquired by... I think it was 2005, if, if I remember correctly. You know, the companies have been competitors for a long time. Macromedia was this upstart web tools company. And I think Adobe had said, this is rightly our territory. We should own this. Of creatives are our domain. Uh-huh. Who's this little company that's doing this stuff? And there was some, there was a lawsuit going on actually at the time, uh-huh. uh, a suit over user interface. I don't even get into the details, but there was a lawsuit going on. And uh, that actually, ironically enough, kind of got the CEOs in contact. And that, I think, ultimately resulted in the acquisition. No kidding. Yep. And then how long did you spend at Adobe? A couple years. A couple years. And then when you were at Harvard, did you always know that your life was predestined for technology? In a way, I don't think I knew that there was even a thing called the technology industry, although I was aware of it because I'd grown up adjacent to it in Nevada, Reno, Nevada. So I knew it existed, but I didn't know that that was like 
a career path that I was going to pursue. I was just somebody who was good at computers and was into like fixing things and like to help my friends out when their computers broke and stuff like that. And that's how I kind of got into it. Mm -hmm. When you were growing up, what was conversation like for you at the dinner table? You know, normal. I don't think there was anything unusual or telling about it. It was the you know events of the day. How was school? This, that kind of stuff. Mostly it's what happened after dinner that mattered. Tell me more. I played backgammon with my dad more or less every night for most of my youth. And my dad was a really fierce and good backgammon player. That is honestly what probably shaped me most. I grew up in Reno and Reno's a gambling town. And so, of course, it's important for you to have all those gambling skills. Uh I don't like to gamble now. I'm not a gambler. Uh But like I play a pretty good game across all the games of chance and skill. Backgammon is both. It's a game of skill and chance. Uh And I think it's a perfect metaphor, actually, for business, because it really forces you into having to deal with the situation that's right in front of you, deal with the dice that are on the table and the position of your pieces and understand where the game's going and make a strategic bet. And sometimes it works out. Sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. There is this interesting thread around backgammon in business where there's a lot of autonomy in the way that your pieces move and then how you cover those pieces. That's right. Do you think you could tell something about somebody based on the way they play a backgammon game? Oh, for sure. Well, first of all, there's the skill, like, you know, how much experience pattern recognition do you have? But there's a risk reward thing too, because most people play backgammon if they're, if they're not serious about it, they play it with kind of a risk averse kind of mode. You know, they kind of keep their pieces covered or they don't understand when they're taking too much risk or it's the wrong time to take risk, which again, perfect metaphor mm-hmm. for business, right? I mean, like understanding how your resources are arrayed, What's the potential range of outcomes that are in front of you near term and short term? What move might you make that opens up some adjacent possibility? Hey, what move you make might be catastrophic and in the game. These are all things that I think in some sense, intuitively, all business leaders are doing. And I wouldn't draw the cord and say, oh, my dad taught me how to play backgammon. That's why I'm here today. That's not true. But it's funny. I do draw on those skills and I do find those dynamics of being like understanding when to take risk and understanding when to close up and keep your pieces covered and watching someone play. You can draw a lot about their character out of that. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, Toby, the Shopify CEO attributes a lot of his business knowledge to video games growing up. Yeah. Why was backgammon important? Can you go one layer deeper? Well, I think it was what my dad wanted to do. So I guess it's kind of what I did because that's what he wanted to do. He was quite serious about his play. And I think for him too, he insisted that we play for money. And, uh, you know, I had like some meager job, whatever. How old were you? At the time? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Maybe probably nine to Uh 14 or something Uh like that. That was really the heyday of it. So I, you know, whatever I was like cleaning the bike shop and getting $8 on the weekends or something like that, but we would play for money. And so sometimes I would win and I would get a little bit, you know, a little bit of extra scratch and we were paying for whatever, a quarter, a point, 50 cents, a point, something like that. So the point is the stakes on a night would be 20 bucks. And the, fact is, is I think he won most of my money from age nine to 14. <laughs> so most of my money was, a, was recycled back into the family pockets through the agency of backgammon. But the lessons that I learned, I think yeah. were really there. The point I'm trying to make though, is that if you don't play for money, it's not serious and doesn't matter what the stakes are. For me, the stakes were serious because if I could win 20 bucks, that meant, you know, whatever I could go down to the store and get something. But when I lost, I felt the sting of it. And so again, that's the best teacher because you're learning the preciousness of the decisions that you make. The arc of your career is super interesting. It's really fun to watch the way on paper that you have made decisions. You went from Adobe to Redpoint Ventures, a venture capital firm down the street. You spent a year there? I was like a junior varsity, you know, venture capitalist trying to figure out what it was all about. Right. 
Then you went to Linden Labs, which is the Second Life company. Correct. And you spent two years there? Maybe 18 months. 18 months. Then you went to HomeAway. Yep. In 2010? Is that I right? I think that's right. Yeah. And you spent six years there? Yep. Was Airbnb a thing yet? It was not when I started, and it became a thing over the course of the time there. Really, I mean, we had lots of conversations, as you might imagine. HomeAway felt like they'd invented the category. It was a roll-up. We'd acquired most of the sites that had started in the vacation rental space, which is what people called Airbnbs before they called them Airbnbs. And, you know, the conversation at the time was really, do people want to sleep in other people's houses with them in it? As opposed to, do people want to stay in other people's houses without them in it? And I think that was the distinction at the time. The reality is, is that it was really about the ability for people to use spaces that weren't occupied. And when they weren't occupied, they weren't getting any value out of it. So how do you make that connection possible? The key, I think, for Airbnb, honestly, was business model. And that was the biggest debate over the course of our time at HomeAway was trying to figure out what was the right business model. Was it supply side advertising business model? Was it demand side monetization, which is the way Airbnb ultimately went, free for the supply side, paid for the demand side, travelers pay a service fee. And interestingly enough, towards the end of my tenure there, we had made that transition over to demand side monetization. And that was a lever that allowed Expedia to purchase us. And I remember the day we literally flipped the switch on the business model and tripled the company's revenue overnight. No kidding. It was, I mean, honestly, it was one of these moments where you're like, hmm, strategy. Turns out that's a really good thing. We should definitely do that. And you were the CPO, chief product officer for almost five years, then became the COO. Yeah. And then I guess Expedia bought you during that time. Yeah. Then you went to Momentive, formerly known as SurveyMonkey. Yep. Six years there. And then now the CEO of Aura. I want to go back to the HomeAway thing for a second. Yeah. How annoying was it knowing that you all were in the pole position and then there's this pesky startup, Airbnb, that's all of a sudden growing way faster? It's funny. I think there were moments of annoyance, but I don't think it was like the centerpiece of thinking. And partially because the visibility into Airbnb wasn't that great. You didn't actually know how big or how fast it was growing because the numbers weren't really actually available. Yeah, I do remember one of the things that was really a compelling fact was when we were looking at, call it the gross market value and our take rate on it in a subscription business model, where we were basically charging advertising fees to the people who owned the houses, the take rate turned out to be about 3%. And then we were sort of doing the math on the take rate from a you know average booking with Airbnb. And it was like, hmm, that's more like eight or 9%. Going back to that sort of tripling the business when you flip the switch on the business model. And I think that was something that was like, oh, and it wasn't really annoying as much. It was like, hmm, that's a pretty interesting and better business model. Now, I think what made it less annoying is that at the time, we thought our basket size was larger, which was true. If you rented a whole house and stayed there for a week, you might spend 1500 bucks or 2000 bucks. If you rented a, someone's couch in Brooklyn for two nights, you might pay 50 bucks. And so in the absolute dollars, you, know, you might look at it and say, oh, okay, well, the basket size is larger. But the really thing that really jumped out was the frequency of use, which is that people used Airbnb all the time, particularly people of a certain generation, young people would use it all the time. So it wasn't annoying so much as it was, okay, this is a space that we should really be thinking about. Should we think, be thinking about entering urban markets? Should we think about this business model of demand side monetization through a service fee? Should we be thinking about targeting a younger demographic with you know a different value proposition around shorter stays, weekend stays in cities, as opposed to week-long stays in vacation destinations? All these things were kind of the strategic questions 
And ultimately, I think we, we made the right call, which was to enter that market and to, to reinforce our strength, which is whole houses. And in fact, even to this day, HomeAway, which is now referred to as Verbo in the Expedia universe, it's a quite a compelling business. And it's still oriented around those longer stays and those bigger houses and families and stuff coming together. Mm-hmm. Was there a learning lesson that you took around the way that a, you know, in this case, maybe it was a go-to-market strategy could be used as a competitive advantage. So specifically the way that you viewed demand side versus supply side and how Airbnb might do it versus how HomeAway was doing it at the time. And maybe there's a non-existent thread that I'm pulling there. Well, no, I I think there's so many threads. And honestly, I don't think I've ever spoken out about it. And I'm sure, I don't know that everyone's ever really told this side of the story in a big public forum. I'm just not sure if it's been told. So I hope I'm not speaking out of turn. Yeah. But from the perspective of being inside the company at the time, there were two things that really jumped out to me. One was HomeAway crushed on SEO. And so the cost of customer acquisition was incredibly low. And Airbnb, while I think they got good at SEO over time, I don't think they had sort of quite the asset base that HomeAway had from multiple domains and longstanding existing domains and big corpuses of content and reviews and all these things. And so at a certain period of time, SEO felt like a real moat. Now, I remember a conversation with Bill Gurley and he said, Tom, you got to recognize that you as HomeAway and VRBO as a public company, because we had gone public in 2012, we were bound by the constraints of a public company. And Bill's point to me was, hey, Airbnb can be a little bit smaller than you and can spend twice as much as you on marketing because they can afford to lose $100 million because that's their business model right now. They can grow on the back of $200 million of marketing spend. And we, at the time, we were like $500 million and we could spend $75 million or $100 million on marketing. That actually, interestingly enough, is a really important lesson for me. Twofold. One, being a private company and having that ability to spend aggressively on marketing, to capture a market as it's shaping up and to build a brand and build a use profile and build a loyal customer base and, you know, an affinity and a category. I mean, Airbnb defined a new category. It wasn't vacation rentals. It was Airbnbs. Wow. Great move. Defining a category. Second thing, being public was a constraint. And for us, it was a constraint that forced us to not be able to have that kind of license to change the business model rapidly or change the marketing spend rapidly. Some pretty interesting, I think, lessons to take away from it. And at the end of the day, I got a ton of respect for the team at Airbnb and and maybe the investors behind them who were like, this business model thing that we've got where we're monetizing the demand side, it's really scalable and it's really powerful. And it's going to afford us a long-term advantage in terms of the degree of monetization. Their take rate, I don't know what it is today, but it's probably still nine or 10%. And as the market grows, that's a big difference from a company that's taken a take rate of 3%. Do you think you were asking yourself the wrong question in the early days? Meaning you referenced earlier that the question that HomeAway was asking themselves, that you all were asking yourself was, would people want others living in their home? Where maybe the appropriate question to ask was, when my home isn't being used, are we okay with someone using my home? I don't think it matters, to be honest, because the sort of hurdle of getting someone to become, you know, what I think they call a host in Airbnb, an owner or a whatever, that whole dimension of psychology of deciding to take some asset and rent it, it's the same, whether you decide to do it 
with your vacation rental that you inherited from your parents or from yeah. your back room. It, there's some differences, but at the end of the day, it's really about, am I deciding to commit to being in this business and what are the, what are the yeah. ways I needed it? That I think is not any different, to be honest, between the two. What I think is a little different between the two, if you think about Airbnb being something where it's a way for people to make a little bit of extra money, there are more people who have extra rooms than there are people who have vacation rentals. And in some sense, I think that was the surprise. And so, you know, kind of going to the question that we should have been asking, I don't think we were asking the wrong questions. I actually think we were asking the right questions. We were just focused on the segment of the market that had houses to rent. Yeah, you're going whale hunting instead of maybe doing a land and expand. It, well, I don't know. I don't know if it's, it's even that. It's just like, I think Airbnbs were a new thing. And the idea of having someone stay in your house, even though, you know, the reality is a lot of the business and traffic on Airbnb, I think, was people who were trying to get demand for their properties yeah. that were whole houses. Yeah. It's just, again, one of the laws of a marketplace is that demand follows supply and supply follows demand. And so if you capture demand, then supply is going to follow. And I think we saw this over the course of, I don't know, Airbnb and Homeways history, which is that as Airbnb grew its demand, supply started to follow along behind that. You don't have to say, but are there any decisions that you wish you could have back at that point? Are there any key strategic decisions that you made? Maybe like the framing that I like to use that I stole from Amazon is the one-way and two-way doors. Maybe yeah. a decision that you thought was a two-way door that ended up being a one-way door. You know, Anything you could have back. I don't know that there's anything I could have back. I think maybe if we had moved sooner to that business model, maybe the outcome would have been dramatically different. I do remember we had a lot of conversations around the table. And one of the sort of kind of core beliefs, and maybe this is the so what, the so what is, Examine your core beliefs, because one of our core beliefs was a service fee was an irritant to consumers and that the willingness to pay that service fee was a disadvantage in the long term. So we would have conversations that looked like, hey, do you remember in the 2000s when there was Travelocity and Orbitz and Expedia? And one of them had service fees because they were charging five bucks to book an airline. And you know, if you wanted to book a seat on an airline, you'd pay five bucks and you'd be irritated. Then one of them decided to drop that $5 fee and all the traffic shifted to that site because they were like, I don't want to pay that fee and I'm going to go to the site that doesn't have that fee. And then six months later, the other two sites dropped that fee. We would say, and that's why you don't do service fees. And so we're not going to do service fees. We're going to continue with supply side monetization and we'll figure out ways to use marketplace dynamics where the supply side will pay for greater visibility in the marketplace as people do on, you know, think about eBay and businesses like that. A lot of people came to home away from eBay. So we had a lot of kind of marketplace DNA. That decision to hold off was based on that belief that service fees were not the thing that consumers wanted. It was not right. Now, here's the thing. The parallel was incorrect because in vacation rentals, the inventory, unlike hotel rooms or seats on an airplane from one place to another, is not interchangeable, meaning that a unique and special house that you want that's in the location that's available for the dates that you want, that's got room for your family and your dog and your grandma that's not an interchangeable good and there might not be as much inventory for it. And so as a result, the willingness to pay that service fee is probably greater because it's not, there's no substitute good where you say, oh, well, here's the same thing without the service fee, I'll go over there. That's one. Second thing is, I think, again, going back to basket size, the homeway basket size or the VRBO basket size was bigger. The homeway basket size was 1,400, 1,500 bucks. 
the Airbnb basket size was probably smaller, you know, two night stays, weekend stays, all that kind of stuff. One person, a couple, as opposed to a family. What's interesting about that is that the service fee was also smaller. And so therefore the impact, if you will, of feeling like- On an absolute, not a percentage basis. On an absolute basis, right? And on an absolute basis. So the thing is like, if you're spending 50 bucks a night to stay on someone's couch in Brooklyn, a 10% fee is five bucks, Eh, whatever, it's a cup of coffee. Maybe today, maybe not then. But the point is, is that that also was, I think, a factor, which is the absolute dollar value of it. Now, it turns out when we flipped the switch at HomeWay VRBO, people were willing to pay. Yeah. And that's because it goes back to the value is really marked against a hotel room and a hotel room for five days with enough space for your dog and your grandma that's on the beach. It's going to cost you a lot more than a, a vacation rental. And I think that was really what also there was a sort of marking against that price allowed you to pay that service fee. Yeah. Makes total sense. Yep. Was it a good acquisition for HomeAway? Yeah, I think so. I like, mean, is it public? I oh, imagine yeah. it's public. Yeah, it's well, public. I what, think it was three point nine billion. It's great. Yeah. I How mean, big was the company when you joined? When I joined, what employees? I yeah, think, like uh, I can't remember exactly. But it was like five hundred or something okay. like that. This is huge. Yeah, it was. It was. I mean, we took the company. I think it was one thirty-five. We took it to five hundred million. So yeah. one thirty-five million up five hundred in my tenure. That was great. I, but, I mean, I can't take any other credit. Honestly, I feel like. The team there was fantastic. Brian Sharples, Brent Bellum, Carl Shepard, the guy who's running it now, Jeff Hurst. I mean, these these were some really great guys around the table and gals too, Lynn Atchison. And I learned a ton actually yeah. sitting around that table. It was amazing for me. But at the end of the day, you know, a great outcome is a $4 billion acquisition for a company that had started basically as a, as a roll-up. Was it time or did you wish you had a longer run at it? <sighs> That's a good question. We were acquired before we flipped that switch. And I think had we waited to flip that switch, I think we probably could have gotten acquired for more because you would have seen the proof of that business model. Expedia, don't know because I wasn't super close to all the conversations, but I think we were feeling the risk of flipping that switch. And Expedia felt maybe that there was some risk, maybe some upside, and maybe that was what the navigation around the price was. Yeah, I think you were also feeling the shadow of a daunting competitor that was growing pretty fast. For sure. That's what happened with Microsoft and Slack too. You could see this pretty consistently as a lot of examples of M&A happening because sometimes you get tired. A lot of the time, someone else growing really freaking fast. And that's a fight that sometimes is better done in partnership with a larger company. And I think, honestly, we flipped that switch and it made a huge difference for that business. And it's a big business, you know, and now it's a big part of Expedia's overall strategy and getting their vacation rental inventory on all their sites and making it available to folks so they can book it. Yeah. When you went to, actually, before I get to Momentum, just can you tell the audience, what does Aura do? What does Aura do? So Aura makes a ring. Which you're wearing. Which I'm wearing. And that ring sits on your index finger and you barely feel it. It weighs four grams, has a long battery life. And what it does is it tracks your body and gives you visibility into what I call the voice of your physiology. It lets you hear the voice of your physiology. And that comes across in your sleep. Sleep is something everybody does. No one does it particularly well. No one particularly understands it. You spend a third of your life asleep. What's going on? Or it gives you visibility into your sleep. Also, it collects data about your heart rate, your respiration, your heart rate variability, a bunch of other metrics during your sleep and looks at what your baseline is and starts to show you insights based on the deviation from that baseline. So you might wake up in the morning and see that your readiness score because you drank alcohol you know, last night is really low. And it'll say, hey, maybe today's the day you want to take it a little easy. We were just talking about a basketball player who's one of our ambassadors, CP3. Game six of the Western Conference Finals, he got a message from Aura that said, bring it on, because his readiness from the previous night was very high. And, you know, he brought it on and he got 41 points in that game and, and they won the game. 
That is the kind of thing that the product does is it lets your physiology talk to you and talk to you in numbers. And then you can use those numbers to change your behavior. Sometimes people see, you know, from their aura ring that, you know, maybe their partner or their spouse has had a, a rough night or a bad day and they might change their behavior. Maybe they'll be more supportive, more empathetic. Maybe they'll pick up the kids. Maybe they'll cook dinner and having visibility, not just into like, wow, you're really sick, but like, yeah, you're not feeling great is really interesting. It changes how people interact. So it's a health ring tracks, your readiness, your sleep, your activity, and you wear it and you barely notice it's there, but you check your app three times a day to understand what's going on with your body. Sold over a million and a half units at this point. Something like that. Yeah. Um, raised in April of last year at two and a half billion dollar valuation. I'm curious because it seems like a different decision than your career path up to this point. How did you leave momentum and decide on aura? I'm always looking to learn. I think that's what it comes down to. And so something that is interesting to me and is going to teach me something new or engage my brain in learning, that is what's going to hold my attention. You know, the idea of, of how jewelry, fashion, we have a partnership with Gucci at Aura, technology, physics, physiology, science, software, hardware all come together. It was such a heady brew of topics of interest that I, honestly, I was completely captivated by it. And it seems kind of clear to me that if you have a phone, you're going to want something on your body that's going to track your health. That seems inevitable. Maybe a watch, maybe a ring, maybe something you wear in your ear, whatever, maybe an implant. But like, it seems like there is an opportunity that is as big as the number of mobile phones on the planet for people who care about their health, which is everybody. We just went through a giant health crisis. So everyone's mm -hmm. saying about that. So for me, it's about learning. Momentum, the same thing. I was always curious to understand what behavior and data you could extract from a large population because Survey Monkey Momentum really reached a really huge population mm -hmm. of people every day, you know, and every day you were getting signals about what people were thinking about or asking questions about or curious about. It was really fascinating to look at that. Homeway, wow, what an interesting idea. What's the psychology of letting someone into your house that's a place where you grew up or had memories and you want to let someone in there? What's the psychology of that? What's, how does that change? All those things were really interesting, intellectually stimulating. Mm -hmm. And they turned out to be also good businesses. And that's the other way of looking at it, which is, are they good businesses? Mm. When you were at Momentum, the transition from SurveyMonkey happened at some point? Uh, yeah, I think it was 20... 16? Could it be 2016? I think so. Like early into your tenure. No, no, no. That can't be right. I think I got there in 2016 and I guess it was maybe COVID plus one. So it was 2021 is when we changed the brand name. Okay. Yeah. Can you walk me through the internal psychology of a known brand like SurveyMonkey going through such a radical shift. And by the way, Xander's coming on the show in maybe a couple months. Okay, great. Yeah. Well, Xander can tell you all about that, that, yeah. uh, that shift. I, I think the way, at least I thought about it was Survey Monkey was this incredible gold plated brand, but it was very much a product brand and a product experience. And we had a company and that company had the ambition to have multiple products. And so having multiple products that have different brands, you didn't get any lift from it if you were, you know, a one product company with a with the brand name of the company being the same as the product. Mm -hmm. Plus there was a sort of a disambiguation that people mm -hmm. had to do. Am I talking about the company? Am I talking about the product? Right. At the same time, the ambition and strategy of the company was to go towards the enterprise. And so going towards the enterprise, SurveyMonkey maybe didn't sound quite as enterprisey as you might want it to sound if you were trying to say, look, this is expensive, powerful, AI-powered software. And so the idea of the move was don't lose the benefit of SurveyMonkey, the brand. 
That's the product. It becomes the product brand. Invest in the company brand and make that company brand mean something different than the product and give you that opportunity to put other product lines underneath it that would allow you to have different value propositions and go to markets that would support the business, but underneath that, that company brand. And so that would be an example. We were slightly chuffed when a couple of months after we did our brand name, Zuckerberg and Facebook, you know, rebranded as meta. We we're like, okay, that's some validation. We'll take that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. And when you were looking to find your next opportunity, when you're learning plateaued, how does that go for someone like you? Like, is that a recruiter that reaches out? Talk me through that process. What else were you evaluating? Were you thinking about hanging it up? Like, was retirement on the table for you? You know, retirement's been on the table for me a couple times, and it, and it's I'd never really managed to do it very effectively. What do you mean? I get bored, and so I need Did I need something to stimulate. Yeah, I think after home away, I kind of really tried to sort of take some time off and you know whatever, do all the things that you do, and and I was like, oh, I got to get back into it. I think that's probably a way of thinking about it for me is like if if your brain's not working, you're not alive. You got to be stimulated by something. You got to have a problem to solve. Mm-hmm. Okay, but tell me, how'd the process go? Oh, the process, yeah. So it was uh, fall of 20, well, what's this? This is 2023. So I guess it was fall of 21. I was not sleeping. And by the way, I'm a championship sleeper. So for me to not sleep was a real change. Now there were some things going on. We had successfully gotten to an agreement with Zendesk over the acquisition of Momentive. But that was looking maybe a little dicey, like maybe the shareholders of Zendesk were going to vote it down, which ultimately they did. But at the time, I started, we were starting to kind of feel that this might be a potential outcome. And at the same time, you know, I was having a lot of stress in my family life, teenage kids, post-COVID, lots of things going on, and I was losing sleep. So I started paying attention and saying, well, what, what can I do to improve my sleep? And I kind of came into the orbit of Aura. And I put the ring on. I needed some pretty basic things. I stopped looking at my phone after nine. I stopped watching Netflix in bed. I turned the air conditioning on in my room, which you know turns out cold rooms really help you get into sleep. I stopped drinking coffee. I stopped drinking wine because I would drink wine to kind of take the edge off the day because I'd been drinking coffee all day. I stopped doing that. And I started really focusing. I'd always sort of worked out to kind of manage stress, but I just started really th- doing that in a thoughtful way. And the reality is, is that it was like going from black and white to technicolor, because what I realized is that I had been sleep deprived for most of my adult life and getting to a place where I just got both a little bit more sleep and a little bit better sleep. It was like the lights came on and I was like, oh, my goodness, (laughs) oh, my goodness. This product is something that helps people have these kinds of realizations. This is incredibly valuable. This is the kind of I, I could get behind this. This is a mission I want to get on board with. And the search was going on. And I got reached out to by a recruiter. And this is a recruiter that I have a lot of confidence and trust in, a guy named Paul Diversa. And, you know, he's like, look, you're not really the profile they're looking for. But, you know, whatever, we'll put you into it. I trust you, you know, we'll get in there. And I did something I really pushed to get into it. And I really made the case that I was the right kind of person for this job and had the right passion, skill and commitment and energy to make it work. And ultimately that carried the day. What were some of the things that they were pressing you on? What were some of the things that they had concerns about? Because, well, I I guess you'd probably have to ask them that because I don't think they were like, hey, here's the things that we don't like about you. But I got the sense that really they were looking for someone who had a big consumer background and, and came from a big consumer brand and sort of marketing and brand driven. 
and maybe was physical goods and retail on top of that. And I was software straight down the fairway, subscription business models, which we, we do have a subscription business model. So that was a fit. But I would guess that those are the things that they were probably looking for. And so, I, you know, I, th- I think maybe Macromedia and Adobe and all the all the stuff that we've done, a lot of that stuff is really marketing. So, yeah. you know, I've been around the marketing hoop for a while and certainly had run marketing at Momentum. So it wasn't completely you know, And strange. is that the case that you were making? What was the case that you were making on why you thought while it may seem abnormal, this actually could work. It's a software product because the experience that you have with the Aura Ring is through a mobile app and it's presenting you your data and helping you understand the insights about you. It's a machine learning and AI problem. It's a personalization problem. Your health and my health are not the same. Aura Ring needs to recognize that and then send and present the appropriate information to you at the time that you want to hear it in a way that you can hear it so that you can listen to the voice of your body and take action on it. And I think that sort of case of it's like, this is a software thing. It may may have been an important, important element in the case. Yeah. I'm curious if you were explaining company building to an alien, like the act of building startups and companies or to your young kids, how would you explain it? Well, it's kind of like Legos where you try and find pieces that can be, you know, smaller pieces that can be assembled into bigger pieces. And depending on which piece you choose, it opens up optionality for the next piece. But maybe most importantly, you have to have an idea of where you're going. So you pick the right pieces and you put them together in the right order, and then you have the right outcome. That's actually a pretty good definition. Can you take me through maybe a future world where we fast forward 20 years, the intersection of something, a device on you that's collecting a bunch of data and where that collides with public health, as an example. Like, what is the bull case of how this thing could go when I have kids one day? Like, how's that going to look? So I think the reality is that there are big trends in healthcare right now that are changing. The first trend, maybe I would call the consumerization of healthcare experiences. And you look at companies like One Medical, which is basically taking the doctor's office mm-hmm. visit. And, that Amazon just bought. Yeah, yeah. And, and they're, they're making that like convenient and timely. And, you know, you actually get time with the doctor and it's really, you know, like the, the experience of going to one of those waiting rooms is uniform and positive. And so they're kind of taking some elements of the experience and consumerizing. And I think you're seeing that also across the board in a lot of software. You know, I think Apple's done a lot to advance that cause. But so the consumerization of, of healthcare, I think it's underway or maybe it's in the first or second inning, something like that. That's one of the big trends. The second one is a recognition that our healthcare system is oriented really around interventions and interventions after the fact. You think about illnesses like the number one killers and things that cost money in our system, things like diabetes or cardiovascular health. Those kinds of things require expensive interventions and you only make those interventions when the cat's out of the bag, you know, the person's already sick. So I think the big shift here and everybody in healthcare talks about is how do we get to sort of more preventative? How do you get people to be healthier and therefore not burden the healthcare system by getting sick? How do you get away from sick care to what we call preventative care or how do you make that happen? So I think a big part of that is healthy habits and data. That's a place where we play. I think the other trends are things like what is called precision medicine. And precision medicine is lots of different forms. You know, one form is let's look at your DNA and give you the right medicine or right intervention based on your DNA. Another one is, hey, let's look at 
your biometrics and all the data that you have that your body gives off. And what does that tell us about you? I'll give you just a, a quick example. I was in Finland recently and one of the scientists in Finland, we have PhDs working for us who are doing really interesting research, was looking at my heart rate and my heart trends and my heart rate variability over a course of a year because you wear the ring continuously and you wear it overnight. So you get data in a really like very dense view of your physiology. You're getting a lot of data and they were like, you know, your data looks pretty good. You know, you're this, this old, you know, your heart's in pretty good shape. But we noticed these couple of things that were real outliers. We call them ectopic heartbeats. And, you know, we, we, you should be okay. You should be okay. But if we were to assess your heart age, your heart age is probably a little bit older than you are biologically. And so you might want to take a look at that. And of course, I'm thinking in my head, my father died of a heart attack in his mid-60s. And I'm thinking, hmm, this is something I would be uh, well advised to take it advice on. Now, no, the thing is, is that that's about me and my particular, you know, data collected over time and viewed in, not just from going to a doctor's office once a year and getting a checkup and, you know, how tall are you? What's your weight? Let me take your temperature. Let me take your blood pressure. But like, how have I changed in the last year? That's interesting. How's my heart rate, my resting heart rate changed in the last year as I started this stressful job? How has my heart rate variability shifted over the course of getting COVID and recovering from COVID and having a busy travel schedule and then having a little bit of time off? Like having some understanding of that, that's precision. And so the ability to both make predictions based on the long term, what's showing up in my physiology that might be an indicator that maybe down the line, I sleep is implicated in all sorts of things like heart health diabetes, type 2 diabetes. It's implicated in Parkinson's disease. It's implicated in Alzheimer's. And so what are the signals that show up that might indicate some long-term health condition and how we might do something about it now, not when it's too late? I think those are some of the trends in healthcare that I think we're steering into. And in the bull case, basically you think of something like a wearable being something that provides this longitudinal view of your health you're wearing it 24-7, so you get the density of data that allows you to see changes early on, that allows you to build patterns. And as you look across populations, you can see in those populations the patterns that are predictive of heart attacks or diabetes or what have you. I think that's really the potential of this whole space, is that if you start to have a really rich data set, the power of large-scale computing, you can start to see patterns and predictions that are both precise and preventative and predictive about people's health. Do you think there's a world where we'll look back in the not so distant future and think it's silly that we didn't all have some version of real time telemetry of our health happening? I don't know if we'll feel that it's silly. You know, I don't think it's do people feel it's silly that we didn't have cell phones. I mean, you know, maybe, but maybe silly is not the right word. But, but I think there's some amount of inevitability that having data that comes off of your physiology that is part of your healthcare journey, that seems inevitable to me. Yeah. It is also interesting to me as more and more of these types of devices pop up on the market, all of the content that I consume, Aura seems to be very grounded in sleep. Like that's the origin story sure. of the technology. And you still describe the way that you found the company grounded in sleep today. Is that intentional? It is. I can't take any credit for this. This is purely the kind of wisdom of the founders and the leadership that preceded me. Sleep is really strategic. And the reason why sleep is strategic is because if you wear something to sleep and you can get people to wear it to sleep, that's a very sticky use case. Everyone goes to bed every night. Everyone goes to the gym on average 
couple times a week. Mm-hmm. There's some people who go seven times a week, but some people go zero. So you come up with some average. By the way, that's also really intermittent. Everyone knows gyms about February five start emptying out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, people sign up in mm-hmm. January and then they stop going in February. So there's sort of an intermittence to it. Sleep is just this universal thing that everybody does and nobody does particularly well. So that's one element of the strategy. And because of the form factor, it's a great sleep tracker. You know, it's small, it's light. It doesn't light up in the middle of the night. It doesn't beep or bleep at you just to do anything. It's a great sleep tool because it's something that just sort of fits into your life. That's one. Second is when you're collecting data is really important. Because if you're collecting data and you're looking for deviations from a baseline, you want to collect that data with the highest signal to noise ratio and in as much of your variable conditions controlled. So think about when you sleep. You're usually sleeping in the same place. You're usually in the same environment. It's dark. There's not a lot of different activities that are going on. Your body is doing important things while you sleep, but you're not running around or exercising. So you're not getting that kind of noise in your data. And you're getting a really clean signal about your physiology. Now, there's things that happen during the day that are really important too. I'm not, you know, there's lots of daytime functionality that Aura offers up for you. It gives you a view of your daytime heart rate. It lets you know what kind of time you're spending. It tracks your activity. There's all sorts of things that are daytime related, but sleep is this really interesting, powerful data set that's really helpful when you look at stuff continuously over time. Is it weird right now where do you feel pressure to be an AI company? <laughs> Meaning like, like, is it weird? I feel like I am at an AI company. You do? Yeah, because, okay. well, what feeds, does, what does, feeds AI? Large data sets. Large data sets. Yeah. What, what do we have? Enormous data sets across yeah, large populations. You need to make them actionable. Sure. So that's the AI, right? Yeah. And, and like, okay, so what's everybody on about right now? ChatGPT, right? So ChatGPT, large language models, is basically taking ingested text, sometimes having some kind of knowledge look up, but oftentimes not. It's just using the, the logic of the large language model to present something. I think that's incredibly relevant for us. If you think about what people love about the Aura app is that it talks to them and it knows their body in a way that other wearables don't. And that's a function of its accuracy and the continuous collection of data, getting it right. When people wake up and they're like, you know what? I feel a little bit off. And then they look and they say, oh, my readiness is like 75. I'm usually at 85. Something is a little bit off, but I I don't know what it is. I'm not sure what. Getting it right gives us, I think, the license and the opportunity to say, maybe this, maybe that. And can we query your data and and give you an insight? Can we look at the ways you've tagged your history and say, you know what, we've seen a correlation or we've seen an observation here. And can we give you advice in the tone you want to hear it? You know, the tone could be very different based on who you are. Some people who are training for marathons, they don't want to be told to take it easy. They want to be told to push it because they want to get to the place they want to get in their fitness. Somebody who's managing a chronic disease, you know what they don't want to be told? You should get up right now and get off the couch because they're trying to stay on the couch to recover. I think that's where, if you think about the opportunity here, particularly not just for Aura, but I think for healthcare overall, the expertise, the tone, the information delivery, that's a lot of what medicine is. Doctors taking your pulse, you're fine. Your doctors taking your temperature, you're fine. Doctors looking at a scan, it says, woof, we got to operate. We're a long way from that, but like you can imagine a world where all the data that's collected about you turns into something that becomes something like a health journey for you. And I think that could be AI. Mm-hmm. Does it feel a little bit like the John Doerr internet moment of Macromedia to you? Like this thing of, oh my God, is this going to be the driving force of our business? I think that this has always been part of the vision of Aura from the mm-hmm. beginning. So I don't think this is like some new moment. I think maybe it's a it's an amplified, more visible moment, but mm-hmm. I don't feel like it's like something that the team and the company and the leaders haven't thought about. Yeah, fair enough. 
when you were you were mentioning you're in Finland, Finland, right? Yeah. It made me think like of a funny juxtaposition of you, Tom, CEO of great growing business Aura, first time CEO, traveling around the world, managing a company, doing this thing, and looking at your heart rate variability. The juxtaposition that I'm touching on is you're responsible for this great company. It's a big job. It's really hard. The company is also a health company. You know, I, I just wondered if you have any observations about that. There's a little bit of irony. The point of the aura ring is to tell you about your health and to ultimately keep you healthy. This is a very taxing job as the CEO of a company. For sure. Well, no, I guess maybe I wouldn't think of it as ironic. I, I would say, and there's a lot of startup founders who wear the aura ring. And one of the reasons why is because I think the Aura Ring and the software application around it, when it looks at your physiology, it gives you a window into when you need to take care of yourself. And it gives you even sometimes tools to do that. There's a part of the app that's basically like a mini calm with sleep stories and you know meditations and stuff like that. And there's ways for you to look and say, okay, this was a moment where maybe I need to take a break or be restorative or wow, I'll tell you the number of times people have realized that they're getting sick because of Aura. There's a study on this just recently came out, but during COVID, the company did a study and found that they could see indications of COVID a couple of days before symptoms showed up. And this was pretty interesting because what it, your temperature, your respiration, your heart rate variability, these factors are predictive of you getting sick. So one of the things that you learn by learning your metrics is that, wow, I'm on the brink of maybe getting sick. Maybe I should take this day a little bit easier. Startup founders, I think, as you point out, under a lot of stress, a lot of pressure, uh, maybe mental health is, is a factor here. You think about the founder of Brex, who talks about this a lot, right? He, he actually has an Aura ring, and he talks about how Aura helps him find balance and guidance in his life. Listening to that voice in your body, really important for managing a high-stress job. So I guess I would say, no, I don't think it's ironic. I think it's actually appropriate because it helps you keep your balance as you're attempting to do something that's challenging and difficult. Totally. Do you have any reflections, you talk about founders wearing the product on being the non-founder CEO, meaning I've had, let's call it competitors of Aura on this show before. Yeah, It's a founder yeah. who is the CEO. Yeah, Do you think about that in the way that decision-making can be or can't be made as the adopted parent of Aura rather than the founder? Does the question make sense? Yeah, no, I think and I, 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 maybe think I, I know what you're getting do about nothing. I, I don't think it does because, I mean, I feel as proprietary and as proud of Aura as if I did found it, even though I didn't. Yeah. And I feel as connected to the mission and the vision of the company, even though it didn't spring from my head. I think the reality is, is that teams and companies are made up of groups of people, not individuals. I think this myth of the founder hero is maybe there's some truth to it, but at a certain scale, a company is much more than one person. And maybe that one person has a disproportionate effect, but I don't think being a founder maybe makes all the difference in the world. Now, that being said, I have a lot of respect for people like Mark Zuckerberg who have continued to lead their company and have made what I would call big swing decisions. You know, Steve and Jobs would be the- a license to do that in a little bit of a different way. Is that fair? I don't know yet, I guess, I yeah. guess is the answer. I don't think I feel like I don't have license. I don't feel like yeah. you know, that there's any constraint on it. Yeah, Okay. That's fair. How long has it been? A year? Yeah. Do you enjoy it? Yeah. Is the first time CEO gig what you thought it would be? Yes and no. What's different? 
you know, there's a lot of stuff that I would expect that comes with the job. There's a lot that I didn't know to anticipate. So for example, I've worked mostly in public companies, although there's a couple of private companies who made it to public. That's sort of been a domain that I've been in. The relationships with the board and with investors, I think that's something that I've been learning a lot about. And I, I, that was an unexpected dimension of the job. Can you be more specific? Like maybe the level of investment that you should make in that type of relationship? Yeah, I, I think it's been very valuable and very helpful. Like they are now your key partners Absolutely. along with your executive team. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That makes sense. Is there anything that you do on the personal health habit side? It's a question that I love to ask. When Hydro. Tell me, what does that mean? It's a rowing machine. Like it's like a Peloton, but yeah. for rowing. And I find that to be incredibly effective because you can do it in a half hour. I used to run and it would be an hour for me when I would take a run, but the hydro is incredibly effective because it's a full body workout. Mm-hmm. You can work you know, really hard in a half an hour and get a lot out of that. Was the CEO thing a goal you've always had since you were young? No. Do you feel like it's taboo to say that you do have that goal? No. Okay. Why would it be taboo? I don't know. I feel like that it feels vogue to me right now for people to say that, you know, I stumbled into this role. I had no plan. I got recruited into it. You know, I appreciated your candor around, yeah, no, I saw this job and I sold myself into the job. Yeah. I mean, there's not very many CEO jobs available and the ones that are available, oftentimes they're not the ones you'd ever want to take. Correct. And so I think you have to be pretty picky. Somebody gave me this advice actually pretty early on. I don't know, maybe this will be helpful for you listeners out there in radio (laughs) land. They said, you know, I think I was in my 30s. And I said, oh, I'd like to be a CEO someday. This was a former CEO of Macromedia. And he said, "Ah, Tom, you should just wait on it and make sure you pick the right one. Pretty interesting advice because if you were to say, well, my goal is to be a CEO and I don't care of what, you might make a decision that really, sometimes you pick the wrong CEO job, that's your last CEO job. So maybe that's the advice, which is make sure you you look at every opportunity and look at it through the lens of not the job that you're taking, but the job you might want to take after that job. Are there any common threads or key tenets of your career that you would pull on? Are there any things that you think are consistent that as you look back, you say, you know, I didn't know that explicitly, but maybe implicitly? Well, I think it's about people and having relationships with people and having connections with people. That's maybe the through line of, of everything in my career. I think there's the big debate about strategy and culture. And I think I'm probably more in the camp that strategy is more important. You know, Airbnb's business model was better than HomeWays. And so therefore, you know, over the long term, that's what mattered. But at the same time, businesses are prosecuted by people and people are non-deterministic and complicated. And so being good at working with people and understanding their motivations and understanding what moves them and understanding that not everybody's the same. And how do you formulate something that's a business and an idea that connects with a lot of people? It turns out, I think that's the through line that I would draw on. That sounds really broad and generalized, but the reality is, is that I think many people approach this as a deterministic system and people aren't deterministic. So you would take a A strategy with a B team rather than a B strategy with an A team. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think you could always make that B team and A team over time. Mm-hmm. There's a woman that I had on, Claire Hughes Johnson. She's the former COO of Stripe. Yeah. And she has a working with Claire doc. And in that doc, it's everything that you could imagine on, feel free to call me at any point, but be succinct. You know, these are the times that I like meetings. 
these are the ways that I like communicating, no surprises, except like there's, it is pages. I'm curious if there was a working with Tom Doc, which I would argue like, I think you maybe should have one because it's very helpful. Yeah. Uh, what would be some of the key ingredients in the working with Tom Doc? Oh, that's a great question. Hmm. I always like people to bring their ideas forward and to do that in a way that is succinct and compelling, uh, because in many ways, what you're trying to do is to, you're trying to identify which ideas are the ones that should win in the marketplace of ideas. That's what, you know, a decision is really a choice between different ideas. I think asking people to be thoughtful and planful, I think that would be one of the things I would put in my doc. A second thing I would put in is to remember that we are all people here and that like, maybe this is the no assholes rule, right? This is mm. about like, we've got to be respectful. We've got to interact with integrity. We've got to interact with accountability. We've got to recognize that like, we're all in it together. I think that's a really critical one. For me, I tend to be oriented around the numbers and performance and data. And so I would say that, that you should know that about me, but that also maybe you can compliment me by bringing something that's not that to the table and bringing an insight that maybe is, is sourced and founded in data, but isn't implicit, you know, and it has some element of judgment. Bad news travels faster than good news. And so never hide anything. That would be on my list. Uh, it's a good question. I, sh- I should work on that document, kind of see if I can't uh, flesh it out. I'll send you the working with Claire doc. Yeah. It's yeah, awesome. That sounds amazing. Is it surprising to you that most of the things that come onto your desk now are generally probably not the super fun things. It's generally, to your point about the bad news, the things that are the hard, yeah. hairy decisions to make. That's right. Was that one of the surprises for you? No, I think I've been at the top of companies long enough to know what kind of business comes across a CEO's desk. That was not a surprise. Yeah. You know, I mean, I guess I've been around the senior teams of companies long enough and interact with boards long enough that that, that was not surprising. Is it less glamorous than people make it ought to be? I don't think I ever thought it was glamorous. You didn't? I don't think so. No. No. Would you do it again? Yeah. You would? Sure. And when I was watching a Bloomberg interview of you, the flash headline, again, this is Bloomberg, so I'll take it with a grain of salt, was growth pre-IPO company. Like that was kind of the box that they're putting you in. And it was in conjunction with announcing you as the CEO and coming in. At this point in a company's life, people have been here for, when was Aura founded? Mm. 2016. uh, Well, the Series A was raised in 2016. Yeah. I think actually, if you go right to the very, very beginning, I think it's 2013. 2013. Yeah. Like the garage, you know, or the first thing that, you know. So, So some employees have been working on this thing for a decade. Something like that. A decade. Yeah. I just wonder, how do you manage the psychology of this? You know, you talked about the advantages of bringing a private company. You talked, you've seen this before. I just wonder, how do you hold these two worlds in your head? How do you communicate? How do you think about that? Start from the truth yeah, and work from there. Yeah. You know, and, and I don't know that the Chiron that Bloomberg put out there is the right Chiron. Yeah. Uh, and certainly it was a different time. I mean, I think that was still even, you know, early on in the market's meltdown and, and totally. the, you know, the situation that we find ourselves today. So situations are fluid and change. And I think you just have to handle yourself with integrity and clarity and speak truth. And I think people trust that. Yeah. But do you like the idea of maybe being the Airbnb of this equation, meaning having the flexibility and the autonomy of being a private company and making decisions in that way? 
Sure. I think there's an advantage to that. I, I don't know that that, you know, is the determining factor, but I think it's certainly an advantage. Can I revisit the CEO thing for a second? Sure. You know, I, Go ahead. I, I, well, there's something that was in my head and as you were talking, I was thinking about this idea of the document and how to work with me. And it's funny, I didn't have a great, you know, list of things. And it's, I think, because I think part of the way I approach it is I think of myself actually in many ways as the servant leader, as opposed to the person who's dictating to everybody else, how they should interact with me. I oftentimes think about the other person on the other side of the table and what their needs are. I think that's central to some of my ethos. So maybe I'd add that to my document, which Mm. is to know that about me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a good one for your doc. Yeah. On the CEO thing, is there a deliberation or a decision in your personal life that happens as you make these decisions? You have kids and uh, you're married, right? A wife? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Kids. Wonderful yeah. family. How does that talk me through Happy that? Happy birthday, Julia. Today? No, 14th, actually. Happy birthday, Julia. Yeah. Talk me through that. I would say that compartmentalization is a key to being able to do that and to recognize when you have to be there for your family and when you have to be there for your colleagues. And I think you have to be really intentional about that. And it is hard. I will say that it is very hard. One of the ways that I try and do it is like I have a couple of things that I try and keep sacred sacred and you know i try as much as i can to keep the weekend sacred as best i can we have a family get together in july which i you know uh always keep sacred we have a family get together in august which we you know is more my a nuclear family my sisters and i and we try and keep that sacred and have have done so over the past 10 years it's been harder more recently just because of various things changing. COVID certainly part of that. But I think you have to draw those lines and you have to stand by them as best you can. I don't think there's any really great recipe. These jobs are incredibly demanding and they tax you a lot. And they, in many ways, you are forced to make some very difficult choices. But if you do the right things and you make the right choices about your family in the long run, I think you can make it work out. Isn't it funny though, like this idea that yes, they're taxing, However, you've seen the other side, which is chilling under the mango tree, trying to retire. Yeah. That didn't work for you either. Isn't that funny? Mm-hmm. Like, there's no, you know. I'm laughing a lot over here. I don't know if you see my face on the, <laughs> uh, on the microphone, but I'm laughing a lot. I don't know how funny it is. It may be odd, but I think from an early age, I think work was a definition of what it meant to be a person and to be alive and to produce something and be productive in the world and have an outcome of something that is the result of your labor is meaningful. You know, I don't know, maybe some Marxists and, and Leninists would have some some point of view about that that's political vis-a-vis capitalism. But for me, it's about producing something that's of value in the world, having an impact on the world, having an impact on people. I, I find that incredibly rewarding about Aura. We affect millions of people's lives, maybe, you know, million plus people's lives every day in a really positive way. That's incredibly rewarding. So I think of that as like, Labor itself and work itself is intrinsically rewarding, but then the impact that you can have, if that's positive, that's all the better. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like we've lost the script a little bit on that, like the meaning that a vocation can give people. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, I think a lot of people take a lot out of their work. Yeah. Maybe some people have soulless jobs and then they don't take anything out of their work and I'm sorry for them. Yeah. You know. Hopefully AI can automate those jobs away. (laughs) Tom, I appreciate you. Yeah. I appreciate you doing this. Thank you. I conclude all these things the same way. The first is, is Aura hiring? Are there we any are. key or strategic roles that you're hiring for that you want to shout out? Or 
you know, I think we're always looking for very talented people who live at the intersection of software, hardware, physiology, and are passionate about making a difference in people's lives and healthcare. And so I would just encourage you to go to aura.com or aurarring.com slash careers and look and see what we've got on offer. We are certainly hiring and um, we're a great place to work. So be fun to hear if anybody on this podcast listening audience was interested in joining. And is can you buy an Aura Ring on the website as well? AuraRing.com. Right. Uh, we've got two styles. Uh, Horizon Heritage. <laughs> Come check out Aura. It's amazing. <laughs> Last one, when you hear the word grit, what do you think of? What comes to mind? Putting one foot in front of the other and keeping your focus on what's in front of you. Tom Hale, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to check out more than 100 past interviews that we've done and more amazing guests to come every Monday morning. This episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you to all of my listeners for tuning in for an hour plus every week. 